Cool. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to uh, Numbers chapter 21. And um, we're going to be talking this morning about perspective. And um, perspective, by definition, is a, a particular attitude toward or a way of regarding something, a point of view. It's like how we see things. It's how we perceive things in life. You know what I mean? And the way that we look at things um, often determines how our attitude is. You know what I mean? Like if you're at Stater Brothers and you're buying meat at the meat counter and you go to pull the ticket and they're calling number 31 and you get number 32, you're going to wait a little differently than if you pulled number 132, right? You're going to have a little different experience. Or if you pull number 132 and then all of a sudden a friend from high school that you haven't seen in years walks up. The way that you wait is going to be super different. You know, the circumstance is the same. It's waiting for, you know, buy steak. You know what I mean? But, um, but how you wait is different, and it's all based on how you see the situation. Now, I want to tell a story about a concert violinist, but I don't want to mess it up, so I'm just going to read it off the page. Is that cool? It's okay? Okay. Here we go. Nicolo Pagiani the great concert violinist stood before a packed house surrounded by a full orchestra. He played a number of different pieces and then came to one of his favorites, a violin concerto. Shortly after he was underway, as the Italian audience sat in rapt attention, one of the strings broke on his violin. Relying on his genius, he improvised and played on the next three strings. Shortly thereafter, a second string broke on his instrument. He again began to improvise and continued playing the piece. Almost at the end of the magnificent concerto, a third string snapped. You know that a violin only has four strings, right? Okay. Some of you guys are like, don't they have like eight? He's fine. No, but he, he, there's a, now he's down to one, right? Okay. And it says, amazingly, he finished the piece on one string. Now, the audience stood onto its feet and applauded until their hands were numb. They assumed the concert was over, but Pagiani proceeded to play an encore with a full orchestra. He made more music out of the one string than many violinists ever could on all four. Pagiani took what appeared to be a most difficult situation and turned it into a triumph. Crazy, huh? But I think you get like how this relates to life, you know, because in life, like strings break <laughs> every day, <laughs> you know, like things happen. And how do we, how do we face those things? What is our focus in those times? What is our perspective? You know, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now here um, in Numbers chapter 21, a little bit of background. When, when you come to a section in the Pen Pentateuch, a lot of times we forget that there were two groups. The, the, the children of Israel that came out of Egypt through the Red Sea was a different group than went into the Promised Land. Because you remember, after they cross the Red Sea, they go to the entrance to the Promised Land, and they're like, you know, I don't think this is what I want. Let's go back to Egypt. And God was displeased, <laughs> you know, obviously. And then they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And once that whole generation died off, then the next generation went into the promised lands. Uh, promised land. Now, here's, here's a trippy thing, okay? That second generation had camped 
for their whole life. Dang. Like, what's the longest you've ever camped before? Somebody tell me. Somebody thinks that they're like a camping pro. What's the longest you've ever... Anybody. Just you can... A week. Two weeks. Ten days. Somebody said four years last service. So, come on. Second service. Let's beat them. No, I don't Someone's got to go five. Do I hear five? No. But you know, like these guys, 40 years. I mean, like I, I, I love to camp and the longest I've ever camped is two weeks. You know, and like <laughs> dirt and grime starts building up in places you didn't know it could. You know, your back starts feeling like a bag of broken dishes because you're sleeping on an air mattress that your kids popped like the first day. You know what I mean? It's like... They're like, what? I thought it was a trampoline. It's not? Oh, <laughs> it's good to know. And, uh, <laughs> but it's crazy to think. These guys, for 40 years, there was no scrubbing the smell of campfire out of their hair. For 40 years, they were camping, you know? Crazy. But I think the million-dollar question is, like, how are these guys going to be? Are they going to be just like their parents were? You know? Like, are they going to have a little bit different perspective than they did? Are they going to have learned a few lessons along the way? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's what we're going to take a look at. So um, we're, going to look for, we're going to take a look at, at 20 verses this morning, but right now we'll just look at the first five, verses one through five, Numbers 21. It says, The king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. And then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoner. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Then uh, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the, the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Check this out, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Let's pray. <laughs> On that note, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. And oh, it's so good to worship and to sing of you and your faithfulness. And yes, that song just captures our hearts because we all look back and it's like, yeah, all my life, God, all my life you have been faithful. And Lord, with every breath that I am able, I want to sing of your goodness, God. I don't want to be quiet, Lord. I want to sing about it. And so, yeah, it's wonderful to be here in this house this morning, God. And, and as your children, we, we open up your word now and we ask Holy Spirit that you just have free reign in each of our hearts, that you would guide us and direct us and teach us, and that we would all leave here, Lord, having, having grown a little bit more, having learned some things, and, and just a little nearer to your heart, God. So please, just, just pour over us, refresh us, revive us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so they're at this place called Horma, not Hormel, that's the chili. Horma, Horma. And maybe you remember the, Albert took a second, didn't it? 
He was like, wait, that is a chili company. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe you remember the last time they were at Horma. It was the first generation. Okay, the first generation of Israelites, they, they went there, and it was that time I just mentioned when the children of Israel come to the, the entrance to the promised land, and they send in, send in the 12 tribes. And 10 of the, the people came back and said, they gave a bad report, they said, it's really nice in there, but there's giants, and so we should go back to Egypt. And then the other two, um, Joshua and Caleb, they gave a good report. And they were like, yeah, there's giants, but there's also giant clusters of grapes. Because remember, they were carrying a big pole full of grapes, you know, and they're like, man, we need to take this thing. But God was displeased with the children of Israel. And there's a big, long kind of rebuke in Numbers 14. And, uh, and the children of Israel kind of get this. They're like, man, we messed this one up. So what they do is interesting. They don't pray. They don't repent. They don't ask God to come, you know, get their back as they... They go, they just go into the promised land and try to take it in their own strength. How do you think that went? How does it go when you try to do something in your own strength? Or if I try to do something in my own strength without God? It's a disaster, you know what I mean? And so they go in and they get thumped. They get thumped. And that was the last time they were at Horma. And now they're there again, a second time, okay? Um, and the way that they go about going into Horma is like the complete opposite of the first time. This time it says they make a vow to the Lord. They commit themselves to the Lord. They humble themselves before the Lord. And what does James say? If you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. What does Solomon say? If you commit your way to him, he'll make your path straight, right? So guess how this battle went? 100%. Horma actually means devoted. That's what it, it means, is devoted. And they named it that here. But did you ever notice, like in our lives, right? Like when we try to take something on and control it in our own strength, it's like the tighter you try to hold on to that thing, the quicker it just oozes through your fingers, Right? The more you try to manage and control, the more you lose it, you know? But then when we commit things to God and we surrender things to God, it's amazing what he does. And it doesn't always happen in the timing that we want, right? I mean, that's the hard part, you know, because when you, when you roll something over onto him, that in and of itself is tough. But then you got to do the timing thing. And God's watch is weird. That's what I always say. God's watch is weird. It like doesn't, it's not, I'm always like, right now would be good. And God's like, I was thinking three more months. Just wait. It's going to be awesome. You know what I mean? And he just has a different way of, of doing things. And it's always perfect though. He's perfect in all of his ways. Like that song is that we sing. He's faithful like that. And so, they come to this place, Horma, and they have an amazing victory. They committed their way to him. God blesses them. And you would think, okay, you would think now that it's going to be like rainbows and lollipops. It's going to be walking on sunshine from here on out. Like it's victory. And they're just, God's on our side. This is amazing. But you come to verses four and five, and is that their attitude? 
Not at all. I'm going to read it again. This is crazy. He says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God. The one that just gave them the victory. They spoke against God and Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Man, they're acting just like their parents. Exactly the way the first generation did. Every time something bad happened, what did, the, what did they do? They complained. They murmured. Murmur. Can I do it again? No, no, I'm not going to do it again. That murmur. <laughs> I can't help myself. You know, but it's it's like it's like uh, it's a uh, mono, onomatopoeia, mono onomatopoeia, monotipo. Ah, I can't. I was horrible in English. But it's like it's like a, the the word sounds like it is. It sounds like someone complaining. A murmur, murmur. That's what they were doing. That's what they were doing right here. And had God abandoned them? Did God leave them out there? No, not at all. Let's, let's just take a little inventory on the children of Israel at, at this stage, okay? Like God manifested his presence to them every single day in the form of a, a pillar of cloud by day and then a pillar of fire by night. So if they ever wondered, you know, God's left us, then they'd be like, no, bro. Like, look, he's right there. Like you can see him, right? They can see his manifest presence right there every single day. Amazing. And I mean, that glory cloud would actually lead them. Some say it actually covered them from the sun and it just sort of moved them to where they were supposed to go. It's 3,000 years before GPS comes out. They had a GPS leading them the whole way, but it wasn't a global positioning system. It was God's positioning system, right? He was leading them. <laughs> Clapping service. And... The other thing is, when they were thirsty, when they got thirsty, what did God do? Did he just like lead them to a stream? No, that's too easy. He karate chops a rock in half and water comes out of it. Only God could do something like that, right? Like he's making it very clear, I'm with you and I love you the whole time, right? And then to top it off, when they were hungry, he rained bread from heaven. Amazing. And what do they call it? They call it worthless bread. Here. Yeah, they call it manna, but then they, here in verse 5, they call it worthless bread. Worthless bread. Was it worthless bread? It's actually, in Hebrew, it can be um, translated inadequate bread or insufficient bread. Did you know that if you ate the same thing every single day, you would be malnourished? Did you know that? Like, no matter how healthy it is and awesome, you could eat an acai bowl every, three times a day. And you're like, man, I'm going to live forever. No, you're not. No, you're not. Your body might swell up. You might even die because you don't get all the nutrients that you need. Everything, you know, even good things are lacking something. And everybody knows like you need bacon at some stage to survive for life and godliness. 
But isn't it crazy when you think about it? For 40 years, they ate the same thing for 40 years. And they totally lived like they were able to hike through the wilderness and do what they had to do the whole time. Was it insufficient bread, really? No, it was very, very adequate. It was a miracle meal. Mm. Interesting. Miracle meal. So what's up with their attitude? What was up with their perspective? What was wrong in this situation? They go from a victory immediately to complaining. It's almost like they were blind. It's almost like they completely forgot about God's past faithfulness, about his present goodness, and the future promise. They forgot about all that stuff, and all they could see was it's hot, and this is a really long hike, and I don't like being out in the wilderness anymore. And that, that was all they could see. They couldn't see the big picture. And I mean, we could, I could stand up here and bag on them, because they're easy target, right? You know what I mean? We got like, you know, we got four books of the Bible, you know, with them in it and their blunders and bloopers and all that. And we can make fun of them the whole time. But honestly, if we look at our own lives, we do the same exact thing. Because hasn't God been good to us? Hasn't he been faithful to us? Like bailed us out of so many jams. You know, we could all testify for the rest of the day, probably do open mic and people come up and share about the number of times that God's done amazing things in our lives. I mean, we call it a testimony <laughs> and there's loads of them, right? Because he is faithful, but so often we don't see that. All we see is the present difficulty. You know, there isn't enough money. The marriage is on the rocks. The car broke down. I got a flat tire. The job is is killing me right now. And that's like the only thing we see. And we're acting just like these guys. Just like these guys. When in all reality, we have like so much ammo to praise the Lord every single day, all day long. Like I've already asked Shay, I'm like, buddy, could you just walk around with me with your guitar? And we'll, I'll just worship all day. And he's like, no. And I was like, whatever. Some worship leader he is. Goodness gracious. But I mean, when we show up here on a Sunday, when we show up here on a Sunday, we should be so amped to worship the Lord. I mean, it should be like, before the first song starts, we should just be like standing there. Like, I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to wait. I got to do this now. You know, like, that's how we should be. We shouldn't hold back, but unfortunately we do. Because all we see is like those one, two things that aren't super great. And that's all, that's our whole world right there. We don't see his past faithfulness and we don't see his present goodness and we don't see his future promises. We don't see it. Our, pers our perspective is off. So check this out. What happens next is amazing. You guys got to see this. Verses six through nine. It says, so the Lord sent fiery serpents <laughs> woo, <laughs> among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. 
So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a, if a serpent had bit anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Crazy. Okay, so here's the thing. Like God really wanted these guys to get into the promised land. It was the goal. Like he didn't want them to go to the, the, the front door of the promised land and then be disobedient and then have to do another 40 years wandering. He really wanted them to get there. And so what does he do? He chastens them. And he does that with us sometimes, amen? He kind of leads us and, you know, and you're like, oh, 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 that's, uh, you know, and it's like he, he guides us like that. He chastens us and gets us to where we need to be. And it's really because he has our best interests in mind. And so that's what he does. And he sends these fiery serpents and not sure what made them fiery. Maybe they were like, their color was like red and yellow. Or maybe it was because the bite was like stung and burnt, you know, feeling. Or maybe they spit fire. There's no real way of knowing. Maybe it was all three. I have no idea. But that's, they were, they were fiery, fiery serpents. And so Moses, um, so, so the children of Israel come to Moses and they humble themselves. And they pray. And now this is something very different than the first generation. These guys see it and they're like, ooh. We're messing up here. And so they humble their hearts and they come to Moses and they say, hey, pray for us that God will like fix this situation. And God gives Moses a remedy to put a, a, a bronze serpent on a pole and hold it up. And then when the children of Israel looked upon it, then they would be, they would be healed. Is this crazy to anybody else? Like put yourself in the situation. You just got the nastiest snake bite ever, and you're dying, okay? And Moses comes out, and he's all, hey, I made this thing. Take a look at this. It'll save you. You'd be like, Moses lost it. He's, he's out of it. You know what I mean? He's out of his mind. What happened? You know? And in the natural, it doesn't make any sense. Moses doesn't come out with like a, you know, an ointment or something to put on the, on the snake bites or, you know, get the animal control services out. Or he doesn't do anything that would make sense in the natural. He raises up this serpent on a pole, a bronze serpent on a pole. But you see, they had to then stop squirming, trying to save themselves. They had to let go of a little bit of control. They had to stop focusing on the situation and they had to lift their eyes up, didn't they? It was a conscious choice they had to make. It was, it was an act of faith. But even still, I mean, a serpent on a pole? That's so weird, you know? Like, what? How is, so, so in the Bible, uh, a serpent is a symbol of sin, right? The fall in the garden, the curse, okay? And bronze is a symbol of judgment because bronze is forged in the fire. The, the altar that they did the animal sacrifices on was bronze as well. And so what we have here is a symbol of judgment for sin. Sounds familiar. Those people that are kind of Bible nerdy, 
You're like, I know where he's going with this. Let's go there. So John 3, verses 14 and 15 say, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have, ever, have eternal life. See, Jesus Christ came and he was the spotless lamb, sinless in every way, right? But as he hung on the cross, the, the, the weight of our sin was, was placed upon him. And, and Paul says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become his righteousness, right? So he took on our sin and then was judged as if it was us up there. And, and he suffered the full punishment, the full judgment for our sins. Man, you can never say that God doesn't love you. Oh my word. He absorbed that whole thing. It's like the full wrath of God and judgment of God was coming in the form of a freight train towards you. And Jesus pushed you out of the way and he took it. That's what it was. That's what it was. Man, he's amazing like that. And this, this serpent on the pole is actually a picture of our Messiah, of our Savior that came and was judged for our sins. Now, it's interesting because Moses didn't provide a, a couple of options. He didn't raise up the serpent and people are like, oh, that's offensive. I don't like snakes. What's the what's fear of snakes? What's the something phobia? No, arachnophobia is the spider one. That's it, snake-itis, thank you. That's the clinical term. But anyway, <laughs> but Moses doesn't provide some other options. He's not like, oh, you don't like the snake? Oh, that's cool. I'm going to go ahead and just put a koala bear up there because everybody loves koalas. They're so cute and cuddly. Like, everyone will love this and hold that up also and hold up the two and, hey, whatever you want to do, man, it's cool. He, he held up that one, that one symbol. And that was the only way that people could be saved. And it's similar to the cross of Jesus Christ. There's, there's one way. There's one way to heaven. There's one way to have our sins washed away. There's one way into a relationship with God. There's not multiple ways. It's through Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I just want to say, like, as believers, we're talking about perspective, right? And as believers, when, when we keep the cross in mind, it really helps our perspective. When we keep that thing, like what Jesus did. How, I, so, so many times, like, Christians think that, you know, you get saved, and that's like the introductory sort of thing, and then you move on to bigger and better things. But man, the gospel is everything. The cross is everything. Because that's the symbol that he really loves us. And when we're focused on that, the circumstances of life really seem kind of small. Because then you know that he's for you. If he's willing to die for you, he'd do anything for you. And when you know that he really loves you like that, then you're kind of like, man, I could, I could, I'll be all right. I'll get through this thing. And we need that perspective. We need that perspective to keep the cross before us. I like to take a, a little rabbit trail and, um, and just talk about 
little more of this, the serpent on the pole. Whatever happened to that thing? Mmm, mmm. They kept it. They didn't, they didn't throw it away. They didn't bury it in the wilderness. They kept that thing. And eventually, they worshipped that thing. Now, the thing is, is it was a good thing, right? Obviously, that wasn't the thing that, that saved them and healed them, but it helped in that minute. And it would have been something to keep around and be like, hey, remember that time? Yeah, we're not going to complain and be disobedient anymore. Remember that whole, you know, and serve as a reminder, but they worshiped that thing as if it was their savior. You know, um, Isaiah 45 verse 22, God says, look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there's no other. That serpent on the stick didn't save them. God did, right? Um, it wasn't until, actually, it was um, Hezekiah. Hezekiah. And, uh, and he, he kind of did this reform in Judah and knocked down a bunch of the altars and, you know, smashed a bunch of the idolatry going on there. And he got, he got that serpent, that snake. He threw it on the ground and he declared it Nehushtan. And Nehushtan means bronze thing. It wasn't God. It wasn't able to heal. It wasn't able to sin. It was just a bronze thing. And that's what idols are in our lives. They're just thingies. They're not able to save you. Alcohol can't save you. Drugs can't save you. Parties won't save you. Relationships won't save you unless it's a relationship with God. It's just a thing. Nahushtan. But you know what? As Christians... This is something I've noticed. This is like an observation I've made in my life and in other believers' lives. Man, like, like when our relationship with him starts to lack a certain vibrance, when we sort of wander away from our first love towards him and things just get kind of dull, a lot of times rather than humbling ourselves, spending time with him, drawing close to him, we cling to these old relics, religious things, an old Bible grandpa gave me, or even a church service, or an old worship song, or even for some of us like a ministry that we headed up back in the day. And none of these things are wrong. Like the snake on the pole wasn't wrong in and of itself. But when we make those things our savior, oh, we've like wandered so far. We've wandered so far because it's just, it's Nehushtan. <laughs> it's just a thing. Just a thing. Pastor Chuck tells this really cool story. Um, you know, before Calvary Chapel, he was like, you know, head of a denomination, or he wasn't head of a denomination, but part of a denomination. And he got posted at this one church and it was like a pretty beat up, you know, like outdated kind of church. And, and so he goes there and he meets with the elders and he was like, hey, we need to do, you know, do some upkeep. Place is falling apart, you know? And everyone was like, oh, cool, you know, yeah. So he announced it on Sunday morning and most of the people were very relieved. <laughs> like, but then this one lady came up to him and she was like, what are you going to do with the pulpit? 
And Chuck says that the pulpit was a, like it was all rickety. You know what I mean? Nails sticking out. You get splinters. Remember how he'd like hold the pulpit like this? You know, so he'd get splinters on his hands. You know what I mean? And he was just like, well, we were going to get rid of it. You know, and she was like, you can't get rid of it. Pastor so-and-so used to preach from that pulpit. And every time pastor so-and-so preached from that pulpit, the fire would come down. We can't get rid of that pulpit. <laughs> and Chuck was like, okay. So they did like, they renovated everything else, but the, they kept the pulpit. And he said they built a new pulpit around it. <laughs> so that like, if anybody like said anything, he could be like, no, no, check it out. Check it. And had all the rickety drawers and like <laughs> cabinet doors still on the back part of the, of the pulpit, you know? But isn't it funny how we'll like cling to stuff like that? An old rickety pulpit? Come on. Like that thing doesn't have the power to save. It's just a thing. It's just a thing. And I just want to say, you know, if you find yourself in a place where your walk with him is dry, you're like in the wilderness. You know what I mean? Like that vibrance and that first love is lacking. The way back is not things. The way back is relationship with him. Spend time with him. He'd love to hang out with you. He would love to. Open up his word. Just get in there. Start diving in. Breaking open the text. Read, pray, worship. All the basic stuff that we all know. That's the way back. It's relationship. So it's crazy. These guys go from... from making a vow to the Lord and then winning a victory at Horeb and then complaining and then getting bit by poisonous snakes. It's been a crazy day for them, definitely. So do you want to know what happens next? Okay, I'm going to read these 10 verses and I, just a warning, there's lots of really difficult names and I'm going to read them as fast as I can so you think I'm pronouncing them right, but I'm probably not. So... Now the children of Israel moved on and camped at, in Oboth, and they journeyed from Oboth and camped in Iji Abarim, in the wilderness which is east of Moab toward the sunrise. And from there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered, and from the, um, there they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness, that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb and Sufa, the books of the Arnon and the slope of the brooks that reach to the dwelling of Ar that lies on the, and lies on the border of Moab. From there they went to Beer, which is the well, where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. And Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, and all of you sing to it. The well the leaders sank deep by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And I'm just going to stop there. Um, I hope you're seeing it. Like, So when they're focused on the circumstances okay, in the wilderness, it led to bitterness, Bites, fiery bites from snakes. The circumstances ate them alive. But now that their their perspective is different, they find a well. They're still in the wilderness. They're still eating manna for breakfast tomorrow morning. It's still sunny and hot. 
The way is still difficult. There's still enemies before them. But they're singing. They're singing in the wilderness. It's because their perspective changed. The circumstances didn't necessarily change. There's a well, that word beer there in verse 16, it means well. They found a well in the wilderness. Man, guys, we can find a well in the wilderness. Find water in the wilderness. If you're in a dry space in a tough time, there's, there's a well there. We just got to see it. We got to shift the focus. You know, I don't know where you're at this morning. Don't know what circumstances you're battling and difficulties before you. But you know, like, I want to encourage you to get your, to lift your eyes up above those immediate things. The finances, the job, the busyness, the wayward teenager, whatever it is. And just focus your attention on him, who he is and what he's done. And look, I'm not talking power of positive thinking here. I'm not talking like four steps to finding a million bucks, you know, under your house. (laughs) I don't know why I said that. But, you know, like I'm just saying, like to be able to navigate this crazy life with all its challenges and difficulties, we need to have the right perspective. We need to have our focus on Jesus and what he's done and who he is. And so... I'm going to just kind of finish there. And um, I want to read a psalm, and and then we're going to pray. And Shay's going to come up and and lead us in another song of worship. But man, I just, like like I said, I don't know where you're at, but it would be a real shame if you woke up this morning, you came to church only to check a box, to say, I went to church today. And never having really encountered him, met with him, repented maybe, rolled some things off. And I think that this moment right now, this this kind of closing moment, is an opportunity for you to connect with God. So let's just kind of quiet our hearts and um, finish out the the service this morning. Psalm 61, verses 2 through 4. David says, From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Salah. And Lord, we just want to... <laughs> the clapping. Oh, man. Uh, Lord, we just want to thank you so much, God, for your word this morning. And, um, but, but it, it just serves as a reminder to us, Lord, that you are a shelter to us. You are our place of peace. You are our defense, the strong tower that we hide in, Lord, when it's tough, the shelter over our heads when the storms come, God, you're everything. And we just pray this morning, Lord, that you help us to remember. We're so forgetful. Help us to remember that you are good. And your mercy, it endures forever. And I pray for my brother and my sister this morning that are really in a season of difficulty. 
and the circumstances are just chowing away at them. And they feel whittled down to like, like nothing, God. I, I pray for them this morning. I pray that their eyes be lifted and that they see, God, that you are for them. You are very, very busy in their lives and you never left them because you promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Yes, Lord, may we leave here this morning with a song on our lips. No matter what the situations are we're facing, may we all from our hearts be singing, spring up, oh well, within my soul. Spring up, oh well, and make me whole. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.